You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, this is Lurk here. Thanks for checking out Lamb Goats, the Van Flip podcast. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, or if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Those definitely help us out with the algorithm in the podcast world. Also, if you want to go ahead and share this podcast with a friend of yours, please do so. You never know. You might turn your friend on to their new favorite podcast. Make sure you're following the Van Flip on Twitter, at Van Flip Podcast. Actually, go ahead and tweet us right now. Let us know you're listening. Speaking of social media, make sure you follow Lamgoat as well. Give us a like on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Lamgoat. Make sure you visit Lamgoat.com to stay up to date on news, releases, and announcements from around the hardcore and metal world. And if you enjoy watching podcasts rather than just listening to them all these episodes and more content are available on the lamb goat youtube page so make sure you head over there give us a sub and hit that alert bell so you always are notified when new episodes and content are uploaded at this point i want to shout out all of our patreon supporters jc alec jeff lachlan and dylan thanks for your continued support i can't express how much your contributions help out the podcast speaking of patreon supporters starting this month at the end of each month we will do a random giveaway to one of our supporters this month we are giving away internal incarceration the new album from year of the knife on vinyl all Patreon supporters are already automatically entered, so head over to patreon.com slash thevanflip to learn how you can help expand the podcast and win some free stuff. And one more announcement before I kick on the intro. I'd like to have a new theme intro, so if you have an idea for a new intro, hit us up at Vanflip Podcast on Twitter and let me know. On this episode of the podcast, we have Finn McKinty, or better known on YouTube as the Punk Rock NBA. Oh yeah, what's this? I feel this. Oh yeah, this is good stuff. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! Lamb Goat presents the Van Flip Podcast. All right, welcome back, or not welcome back, welcome to this episode of the Van Flip Podcast. This week we are lucky enough to be uh, interviewing or have on the podcast Finn McKinty, who uh, some of you may know from his earlier days as a writer, but most of you or the younger crowd may know him as the Punk Rock NBA on YouTube. Uh, he has a channel where he does weekly videos on a lot of topics that are scene-related uh, or scene-issue-related, and... Um, rock music or music related as well uh, he also does a podcast that he recently started in the last couple months i believe correct uh yep in january and that is slightly different than your punk rock your nba channel uh the content wise i i would assume right yep so on the youtube channel uh essentially what i do is dissect trends in music and kind of popular culture. So, you know, why did this band uh, become popular? Why did this genre fall off? Things like that. So it's kind of more music fandom focused, uh, you know, from my, my perspective is always going to be that of a business operator because that's just who I am. But uh, the podcast is a little bit more focused specifically on business. So I do talk to some musicians, but also like YouTubers and entrepreneurs and, you know, graphic designers and people like that. So anybody who's found a way to turn their passion into their living is, uh, you know, the kind of people that I would talk to on the, on the podcast. That was cool. I had a podcast prior to becoming the lamb goat host. Um, I had a podcast a couple of years ago, which oddly enough had a, 
a theme, an underlining theme of people who are making their passion, their paycheck. So that's kind of cool too. Yeah, it's hardly unique, but. <laughs> no, it's pretty unique. Obviously, I think a lot of that kind of content needs to be given to a lot to a lot more people, to a wider audience, because, you know, that thought process and that mindset of making your passion uh, a paycheck needs to be more widespread, I believe. Uh, but as Lamb Goat's been around for quite some time, Finn, you've also been around for quite some time. You, uh, maybe some of the guys, or not guys, but maybe some of the people that have been going to Lamb Goat for a long time might remember you as Sergeant D from Stuff You Will Hate. Uh, they might. And that was kind of like uh, you were – explain to the viewers who may not know uh, what that website was about, but it was kind of like a satirical slash opinionated website where you would kind yeah, of – Yeah, it was just a comedy scene. blog I did about 10 years ago. And that's – is that basically like your jumping point into what progressed into the punk rock NBA after you know 10 years? Well, I started doing fanzines in about 1993, I think, when I was like 15. So that was my first foray into what we now call content, which just means stuff, I guess, the content world. So I started making zines back then because at, at the time, you know, this was pre-internet as we know it. That's how you reached people. So I interviewed bands and, you know, did reviews and all that kind of stuff just because nobody was talking about the bands that I wanted to talk about. And I said, well, I guess I'll do it then. And I wouldn't say that I, you know, did it. It wasn't like the best thing in the world because I was a kid. Um, but I did sell several thousand copies of them through the mail, which now that I think about it is uh, that would be really intimidating for me to do. You know, I'm 16 years old going to the post office after school to ship some stuff to, you know, Sweden and, you know, Singapore and whatnot marketing this thing purely through the mail, which is crazy. Like the the way it worked is that there were some big magazines like Maximum Rock and Roll was the big one and kind of the DIY punk and hardcore kind of world that would review every record and zine and anything else that came out. And so if you wanted to get attention on what you were doing, you would send it in to them to review. And so I did that and um, got a little bit of attention there. I don't, I don't actually know how big their circulation was. I would imagine probably in the like high tens of thousands, but I'm not sure. But, you know, I would do that and I, you know, then get, a, I don't know, a couple hundred orders or something for the zine. And I would just do that every time and word of mouth spread. And, you know, that's how it grew. So it's, you know, fundamentally the same thing, you know, um, I did the same thing there as anybody would do with a, a content venture. Now it's like, what is the concept of the thing? How is it different? And then how do you get attention for it? And you do that by just finding out where the eyeballs are and then putting your thing in front of those eyeballs. So, you know, on YouTube, it's the, you know, the recommendation engine on YouTube is amazing because there's 2 billion users on YouTube. And if you get plugged into, you know, the, the holy grail of it would be to be in the top five on trending, you know, that's guaranteed tens of millions of views. I've never done that, but even just getting plugged into like the recommend the suggested videos on, you know, something popular can, can make you blow up at least, you know, relatively speaking, for example, like uh, I did a video about Ronnie Radke that I think was right around when he released um, popular monster, which was his most popular song. And uh, my video was recommended on several of his songs. And so now that video has uh, about a million views because I sort of was able to get my content in front of those eyeballs. So after I did zines, then I started blogging. The first stuff I did was like in the 
mid 2000s. I did a few that kind of never really went anywhere. Then I did one starting in 2008 with uh, some friends of mine called Metal Inquisition, where we like talked about old metal stuff. Also wrote for Metal Sucks. I've written for like Substream and uh, Terrorizer and some other magazines. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I've done, I also did a, um, back in the mid 2000s, I did a kind of a hybrid magazine thing called Flow Multizine, which some of you may remember, it came in like a, a tall rectangular kind of box. It had a CD, a DVD, and a magazine with it. And we did about 120,000 copies of each of those. I think we did 13 or 14 issues, maybe. Those were distributed free at, um, at independent records, record stores and skate shops all over the country. It was like a combination of like music and action sports stuff. And that was new because this is the mid 2000s and that DVD had a combination of like stuff that labels like Tooth and Nail uh, worked with us a lot. They would pay to have one of their music videos on there and then we would produce the original video content. I produced all the, the, the original stuff on there as well as authored the DVD. So that's how kind of I kind of got started making videos. Looking back at those now, you know, this is like 2004, 2005. They're absolutely horrible. Cringeworthy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just the technology back then was so rough. I mean, this is the mini DV days. If uh, anybody remembers that, you know, you have to like <laughs> you had to transfer it in real time. So if I'd get three hours of footage from some surf company, you know, I'd be transferring footage for three hours in real time. and. Yeah. You know, anyway, and and the quality was terrible and all that stuff. But anyway, that's how I learned to make videos. So one way or another, I've been making, you know, content, quote unquote, you know, since I was like a child um, and, you know, blogging is part of that. But at the end of the day, to me, it's like it doesn't matter what the medium is. You know, the I also started doing a podcast in like 2000. I've done two podcasts before this one, starting in like 2010. I did one when I worked at Creative Live. So uh, and then after that as well. So. At the end of the day, the question is like, what are you saying that's different than what anybody else is saying? And then how do you get that in front of eyeballs who might potentially be interested in it? That's, that's it. Um, and I think that the medium you do it in is, is kind of less important than getting those two things right. Yeah. And it's amazing that you said that kind of in the early days, like in the early nineties, how you were, uh, creating a physical zine. Uh, you know, pre-internet days and whatnot, uh, to the numbers that you were saying, even a couple thousand, I mean, even a couple thousand now, uh, as far as, uh, you know, a physical publication would be insane to ha- to do, uh, you know, DIY as well. So that's kind of like a, a pretty big feat, you know? Um, and you grew up in the Northwest, right? Like in the Seattle area? Is that where you were kind of like peddling your, your zine when yep. you first started? Um, and you were just kind of like, did you ever go to the grunge? Were you ever part of the grunge um, push there in that time, or were you always kind of attracted more towards like the quote unquote hardcore scene? No, I thought all that grunge stuff was stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's the equivalent of like, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a good comparison for it now. That would be the equivalent of maybe like you know all those like red state butt rock festivals. You know, gotcha. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not putting it down. It's just when I was 13, I'm like, I don't give a fuck about Soundgarden. That sounds like Led Zeppelin to me. I wanted to hear like, you know, the Circle Jerks and Sepultura, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought all that grunge stuff was very boring musically. Those people are also older than me. 
Um, because especially back then, almost all the shows were 21 and over. Um, so at least in like, in that kind of rock scene, I, there's just nothing about it appealed to me. Even now, I just, I mean, I, I get it why it was significant culturally and I can appreciate it now, um, intellectually because it, you know, it was, it was better than hair metal, I guess. Um, <laughs> but it was not appealing to me at all. I mean, it's not, yeah, it, it wasn't appealing to me at all. As a kid, I yeah. was around it. I remember all that. I remember Nirvana blowing up and all that, but it was just not interesting to me. I uh, agreed that there were there weren't that many kind of um, offshoots for heavier, you know, music at that time that were especially mainstream, um, like you have now. But it's interesting you say that because I also like I did like Nirvana. I was young enough to kind of remember when Nirvana kind of broke out because um, I'm I'll be 37 next month, so mm-hmm. I have a couple years over uh, a lot of people that are still into metalcore and whatnot. But um, yeah, I remember that coming out and I remember liking Nirvana, but not liking it like everybody else did. And then, like you said, always wanting something a little heavier and whatnot. But um, so what, what, what did you kind of break your teeth on as far as like getting into the whole like metal and hardcore scene? What were you kind of like, I know you're a big earth crisis guy. So like, was that the start of it or did you kind of, the first thing I saw was uh, suicidal tendencies on MTV in 1989. They'd been banned from playing in LA for like five years or something because of like gang violence at their shows. Like, you know, the suicidals were like an actual gang and, you know, I, I never went to any of those shows as a kid, but from talking to people who did, from what I understand, they're pretty rough. Suicidals are still around, by the way, uh, as a gang. And um, anyway, so they were banned from uh, playing L.A. And there was a thing on MTV. It was like their first show in five years or whatever in L.A. And I saw that and I thought it was cool. I was, you know, 11 or 12 then and I didn't really understand what it was. But I was like, whatever this is, it's cool. I'm in. And so then I, it was like my birthday. And so I had like, you know, eight dollars or whatever for my birthday. So I bought Lights, Camera, Revolution and, uh, you know, that's kind of what got me into it. And from there, I. I don't really remember what happened exactly after that, but just kind of all the stuff that you would, you know, expect someone to be into at that time, like, you know, Black Flag and mm-hmm. Descendants and the Accused and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, when I discovered Maximum Rock and Roll in, I don't know, 92 or 93 or something, that was really the thing that got me into, like, the DIY punk and hardcore scene, um, which is, you know, kind of a different beast than you know, metal and all that stuff. So that, that was kind of my gateway into all that. And, you know, they hated earth crisis and all the vegan straight edge stuff, but, um, that's how I became aware of it. And then, you know, from there, it's just a, an endless rabbit hole of which corners of the weird world of hardcore you want to get into. Yeah, I get that. Um, did you say that you were 11 and you were attending the show in, a, in LA? Is that what you said? No. Okay. I thought maybe I was like, "What are you doing traveling to L.A.?" I think maybe you're on. Suicidal a Tendencies was on MTV. There was gotcha. a news article about how they were playing their first show in five years. Gotcha, and you bought the album at eleven. Okay, yeah. Um, well, that's cool. So you're kind of like you do a lot of research and stuff like that for your videos. It seems like because you post a video every week uh, for yeah. your punk rock NBA channel, at least. And um, what goes into like? Like, how deep do you guys dive? Do you guys do, like, the, you know, uh, like, how long do you spend getting information? And, and do you, I mean, obviously you have a team of people currently, but when you first no, started I, off. No, it's just me. Oh, really? Because I, I know you have, like, a, at least some people that help you with the podcast, correct? 
Yeah, I have a uh, Deanna Chapman who is fantastic. If you need help with the podcast, you should definitely call her. Um, but yeah, she she produces and edits the podcast. The videos are all me. I would love to outsource that. I'm not, you know, it, I'm very interested in outsourcing that. I'm not sure how possible that is, but I also don't want to be the person that's like, oh, I could never outsource what I do because it's so special and magical. You know, I think people who say that are oftentimes wrong. On the other hand, uh, I don't want to potentially you know, fuck anything up by outsourcing it in a, in a way that wouldn't make sense. But to answer your question, uh, I don't really do research. I mean, this, I mean, my videos are not history and they're not fact, they're opinion. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, my videos are basically just my personal opinion. I might do a little bit of research just to be like, Oh, how, where did this album actually chart on billboard or something? Just minor fact checking, I would say, but I mean, they're not history. So I don't really do, you know, a lot of research or anything like that. Interesting, because it does seem, I mean, you come off as a very knowledgeable person uh, when you watch your videos. I mean, I've been living this for 30 years, <laughs> and I do it, and my job, you know, my, my jobs have been related to music for the past seven or eight years, so, you know, I absorb a lot. Like, if someone's been making pizza for 30 years, you know, they don't need to read a book about pizza, they just know a lot about pizza. Oh, no, I get that, but it's a, it does... It's a lot to retain over the years because there's so many different genres and there's so many different bands. And, you you know, you touch on all these different topics, whether they're topics that someone of my age would care about or topics that of a younger crowd would also care about. So the way you do that is kind of you, you finesse it very well, you know. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I did notice that your biggest episode on your channel happens to be what happened to New Metal. And uh, yep. You're not the biggest fan of new metal, I, I would assume, right? Uh, no, I don't really like it. <laughs> but it's it's crazy how those those videos are the ones that become like your most popular. Like you said, the Rodney, I think the Rodney episode is the second in, uh, in yeah. that line. But yeah, that was a great video. I uh, the new metal video. I did come from a new metal scene. That's kind of how I transitioned over into the hardcore scene. Uh, I eventually found Hate Breed at some point, but. I grew up listening to Corn and, and Limp Biscuit. Uh, I'm from Jacksonville, so Limp Biscuit was like one of the hugest things to ever happen here. Yeah, of course. Um, but you know, as an adult, I can look back on that time and I understand it for what it was. But like you said in that video, it, you know, it was very quick, but it was influential. So um, it was it was a fun little watch that little video. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, my channel doesn't, it's, it's not about what I like or don't like. I don't really have strong, like, I don't listen to music that much. Like, I don't have strong opinions as a fan about music. Like, my my opinion on almost any music is like, it's okay, you know? <laughs> I just, I don't have strong opinions about music at this point in my life uh, as far as a fan. Um, you know, to me, I'm just looking at it as, uh, you know, as a... I think of it the same way as like if you are a, an analyst, a stock analyst, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are a fan of shopping at American Eagle or not. They, your job is to like, you know, do some analysis on American Eagle and tell, you know, your readers whether the stock is, you know, properly valued or not. And so that's kind of how I look at it. So it's, it's irrelevant what I like and don't like. Um, and in regards to new metal, you know, yeah, it's not my favorite thing in the world, but it's certainly culturally very important. And, you know, for that reason, I think it's worth talking about. Yeah, you definitely, uh, you kind of opened my eyes a little bit to not suggesting or to not categorizing like bands like, uh, Linkin Park, the Deftones and all that into the new metal kind of cluster, even though like, 
growing up in that I would have, but now looking back and seeing the trajectory, the trajectories that they have, uh, have gone, you know, you kind of hit it on the head that they were associated with that crowd, but not necessarily a part of that crowd, obviously. So, um, they are very informative, and I, you know, I would suggest if you haven't checked out Finn's uh, Punk Rock NBA channel, that is, is uh, it's very, it, it, you'll find a lot out, and there's a lot of cool little nuggets on every little video that are, that are very tantalizing. So it's a, it's a cool source of not news or, or, or fact, I should say, but opinion. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, you're good. Um, so you kind of been doing marketing from the jump street. It sounds like you kind of marketed your zine. Um, did you, was that something that you did in school too? Cause I know you moved out to Ohio, uh, for a short period of time. Was that, uh, for college or was that like a, uh, like just a relocation situation? Uh, well, a little bit of both. I won't bore, bore everyone <laughs> with the, uh, with the details, but I did go to uh, college at, uh, in Cincinnati at the university of Cincinnati, Originally for uh, design because they have like one of the best public – one of the best design programs of any public school in the country or actually I would say even in the world. It's a fantastic school. Uh, so go Bearcats for anybody listening. Um, but uh, after two or three – I guess three years, I switched out of that and ended up graduating with a degree in management and marketing um, because I realized that's kind of more where my uh, strengths and interests lie. I'm glad that I did get an education in design because it's super useful. I mean, I use it every day, and I think understanding understanding design and marketing is something that, I mean, especially now in a world that's so, like, content-driven, I think that's a great combination. I almost think that that should be, like, a, a, should be some sort of an academic pathway because, like, being able to understand the why and also the how is like that's the magic combination. I mean, that's why influencers are as powerful as they are these days because they understand both of those things. Um, but yes, I've been doing marketing for a long time. Uh, while I was in college and a little bit after that, I worked for a uh, product development company called Kaleidoscope in uh, Cincinnati. We did a lot of uh, stuff for, did like industrial design, product design and, and industrial design and uh, mechanical and electrical engineering. Uh, I did like kind of strategy stuff, so figuring out like what we should make and why. Uh, the we worked for a bunch of different clients, but the the things that I worked on most were for Procter and Gamble, so like Swiffer and Febreze, mm -hmm. which might sound kind of boring to people, but you know these are billion dollar brands that like I mean for example I worked on uh, you know Bounce the fabric softeners. Yeah. I worked on those, and at the time, they were doing like 400 million units a year of that, and I, I that was a long time ago. So I would imagine now they're doing you know twice that or something. I have no idea, but you know, working on anything where the scale is 400 is multiplied, whatever you do is multiplied by 400 million times a year. Like working on anything at that scale uh, is a cool challenge. So I learned a lot from working with them. I mean, it's just the most rigorous, like best marketing organization in the world, in my opinion. Um, and so I'm really grateful that I got to do that. After that, I worked for Abercrombie and Fitch for about four years in design and marketing. Uh, at the time we were rolling out a lot of stores in Europe, flagship stores in Europe and Asia. So worked on opening those in like Hong Kong and Shanghai and Brussels and Barcelona and wherever else. I don't know. We opened like 20 flagships or something at that time. And I also spent a lot of time in, uh, China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, and Korea going to factories there. I worked on the shopping bags, which, again, might sound kind of boring to people, <laughs> but it's, 
you know, I don't remember how many millions we did a year, but it's millions of these things. And at that time, the Abercrombie shopping bag was a big deal. I mean, we all probably remember that. Um, the, the guy with the one with the hunky guy over there and getting the chance to, you know, go over to Asia and work with those factories to do quality assurance stuff was really cool to me as somebody with kind of an engineer brain. Uh, I enjoyed that a lot. And, uh, then after that, I worked for a company called Creative Live, which is an online education platform for creators and entrepreneurs, uh, kind of focusing in particular on photographers. I did that for about four years as well. I started the music and audio part of that company where I worked with some artists that you guys probably know about, like Converge and Periphery mm-hmm. and Between yeah. the Buried and Me and Dillinger Escape Plan. Um, and then... Uh, after that, uh, what I do now, I'm a partner in another online education company called URM Academy, which is, uh, we call it the world's best online education for rock and metal producers. The partners in that are some people that you guys might be familiar with, uh, Joey Sturgis, A.L. Levy, and Joel Wanasek. So we've been going for about five years now, worked with pretty much everybody in rock and metal that you would care about, like Meshuggah, Gojira, Periphery, Lamb of God, Suicide Silence, um, I don't know. Bring Me the Horizon, Fall Out Boy. Yeah, I did remember. I mean, we've, we pretty much had everybody on there. Uh, and so all that, the through line through, you know, those past two jobs is that my, my, my job is to make catch register ring. You know, my job <laughs> is to make, is to grow the business. Um, which, which sounds, you know, maybe that sounds crass to people, but you know, it, it business is business. Like revenue is oxygen for businesses. If you're not growing the top line, there's a problem. You know, and that's that's my job is to grow the top line. And I do have input on the operational stuff that affects the bottom line as well. But, you know, primarily my job is to grow the top line, get more people in the door, um, monetize them better and grow the business. Yeah. And and I also am somewhat obsessed with marketing and the why and how. And so uh, when you're talking about working with Febreze and Swiffer, that is very interesting. And I'm not going to dive too much into it here with uh, on the podcast, but it's interesting to figure out like, uh, you know, why a consumer would buy one over the other and what would make the consumer buy one more than the other. But also, I mean, that logic then can be disseminated down to, you know, anything, whether it's your band yep. CD, your zine, your Instagram account, your anything. So um, one of the things I would like to talk about with you on here would be because we do have a couple, uh, not a couple, but we do have younger bands and members of bands that are younger that listen to in on the podcast. So, um, you know, marketing and stuff like that could be difficult for, you know, uh, a, a new, a new band that has no idea that's never, you know, done anything more so than playing their local club and everything like that. But what, like, what's the most important first step for like a younger, I don't want to say influencer type person, but a younger person that wants to kind of like, break into, you know, the elect, not electronic world, but the internet as far as like marketing themselves. Cause now it's so more, it's so much more than just handing out flyers in front of your show or in front of other shows. Like, uh, it was when I was a kid, we would just market that way and the internet wasn't as prevalent. So like, what would be the best first step for someone to like, you know, step out there? Well, the first thing I would do is like get your your mindset in the right place like every moment of every day is a constant cycle of test measure learn repeat i mean that's what you're doing with everything you do every day is like uh i posted this today how did it perform why did it perform that way what did i learn about that that i can 
incorporate into the next thing I post. So that that's the main thing. Like if you if you are approaching it with that kind of a an engineer mindset, you'll be fine. Because, you know, understand that it's going to take a while, most likely, unless you are really lucky or really freakishly good, which most of us aren't. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a while for you to get traction on whatever you're doing, and that's okay. As long as you go into it with that mindset, you will eventually find something that works. Um, you just have to be, you know, willing to adapt and change and, you know, learn from what works and double down on what does. And as long as you go into it with that mindset, you'll find it. Um <clears throat> Aside from that, I would say that, uh, you know, consistency is also super, super important with a lot of, you know, creative types. They are generally not so good at consistency. <laughs> you know, they maybe, you know, you see this a lot like with podcasts. Someone's really excited about their new podcast. They do like four episodes and then, you know, like, oh, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. And, you know, I'm out of ideas. And then they don't do another one for like two months. And then they do three more. And then they do another one for two months. And it's like, that's not, that's not how you build a business. And you got to understand that what you're doing here is building a business. Whether you want to look at it that way or not, that's what it is. Because you're asking for people for their time and money. And as soon as you're asking people for something, then it's business. And consistency is super important. Uh, you also got to ask yourself, how are you different? What are you doing or saying that's different from everybody else? So if you are, for example, <clears throat> you know, you see a lot of people that want to be influencers just post a picture of themselves in front of some fancy car. <laughs> There's nothing here. Like, how yeah. is this different or interesting? Like, you're not adding – at the end of the day, any content you make has to make your life, your audience's life better in some way, whether that is making them laugh or entertaining them or inspiring them or educating them on something. Um, you got to add value to your audience in some way or another, and it's got to be different. It doesn't have to be, like, night and day different, but there has to be something that's just, just at least a little bit different. <clears throat> So, for example, for a band, you know, if you're posting just the same bland pictures of, you know, your band playing live that could be any <laughs> band anywhere, why would anybody care about that? And I don't mean that in a, you know, that's another question you should be asking yourself a lot is why would anybody care about this? And I don't mean that in a, like, harsh, you know, judgmental way. I mean, just that's the world we live in is that. People are not short on options for how to spend their attention, right? I mean, you got to remember you're competing against not just other bands or creators. You're competing against Netflix and YouTube and TikTok and Xbox and Steam and whatever else Mm -hmm. people and podcasts and like whatever else people could be doing to spend their time. That's what you're competing against. And free, just because something doesn't cost money, that doesn't mean it's free you're still asking someone to spend their time. And I would argue that for a lot of people, asking someone to spend five minutes of their time is a bigger ask than it is. I mean, five minutes, that's an eternity. On the internet, for sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like when was the last time you listened to an entire five-minute song without doing something else? Yeah, I I totally understand that. And and a lot of that has to do with the way that people have obviously ingested content in the last couple of years. Uh, You know, uh, attention spans are just shorter uh as sure. far as stuff is, stuff goes but it's crazy that that also hap- that also happened but long form youtube content is also becoming more popular now so yes it's crazy yes i mean that's a, that's actually a great point um i think people have i think people have maybe evolved their thinking on this but maybe not there's this idea that everything has to be short 
that's not true. I mean, as you said, like there's plenty of like 20, 30 hour long videos with hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube, mm-hmm. you know, or how many games look at like how fucking long is Red Dead Redemption, you know, or, or two. Like that's what, like a hundred hour game. Yeah. And how many people played that for 20, 40, 80 hours, millions, tens of millions. And a lot of people so, watch people playing it. For, exactly. For that that's a great point. That is a great point for like hours. So the idea that everything has to be short is not true. Um, but there does have to be something about it that's compelling. And, and one thing I would say in particular that is relevant to musicians, creators of any kind. Um, but you got to open with a bang. You got to do something that's going to get them noticed, that's going to grab their attention right off the bat. Unless, you know, if you're slipknot or something like that, you have earned the right to kind of, um, experiment a little bit and, and, and ask more of your audience. But if you're a small creator, um, focus on the first, like literally three seconds of whatever you're putting out. Uh, if it's like a video or a song, like I use Lil Pump as an example of this all the time. You know, you know, you may not like his music, but if you listen to like Gucci Gang, there's a reason why that song got so popular is because it just immediately goes into the hook. Mm-hmm. And pretty much every line in the song is a hook. Yeah, it's pretty simple as well. Like it, it, it's not, a, yes. it's not hard to remember. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and the same applies for videos. Like if you watch my videos, I always open with some sort of like, I, I'll clip out like five or 10 seconds of something in the video that's either funny or controversial or something like that at the very beginning of the video to immediately grab your attention, uh, and then get you, you know, to pay attention to the rest of the video. I think of it like uh, a cold open in a movie, like, you, you know, a lot of these action movies, you think about it, like the, uh, imagine the first scene in the movie is some wild, crazy gunfight. And you don't know who's who and why they're shooting each other and all that. But there's people shooting each other. There's action. It grabs your attention. And then, like, the guy gets hit in the head with a baseball bat, blacks out, wakes up, and then they explain, you know, what was happening. Yeah. But they grabbed your attention with that gunfight at the beginning of the movie and then backed into explaining what was happening. So I think there's something to learn there. And that's true even if it's like still images or something like that. You still have to like ask, you still have to ask yourself like, how am I going to like stop them? You put yourself in the user's shoes. Imagine they're scrolling through Instagram or TikTok or whatever. What are you going to do that's going to stop them from scrolling past your shit? You know, that could be some sort of a really compelling headline or a caption or some funny shit in the image, whatever. But if you're a local band and it's just some picture of you guys rocking out to 18 people at your local club, nobody's going to give a shit. And I don't mean to be that. I don't mean that to be like Debbie Downer. It's just like, don't do that. There's, but there's something else you can do that they will care about. And I don't know what that is. That's your job to find that. It depends on who you are. I mean, I, I, I don't know. There's no one size solution that fits everybody. That's why it's hard. But you got to be different. You got to do something that is going to catch their attention. And, and attention is the name of the game. Think about it that way. Like nobody will listen to your music or listen to your podcast or watch your videos until you're able to get their attention. So you have to like look at your job. First and foremost is the ability to get people's attention and then retain it. You don't get to do any of the other stuff. You know, it's like, uh, think of it like the dessert is people listening to your music, but you don't get to eat dessert until you ate your vegetables first. The vegetables is getting them to pay attention. Yeah. How can you have pudding if you don't have your meat? Exactly. You can't just eat pudding for dinner. <laughs> um, it is kind of crazy. Like I would, you know, honestly, I don't know if I would enjoy starting a band or being in a band currently right now with just all the other kinds of 
um, competition you have, like you were saying earlier, it's not just other bands, whether it be in your area, um, but it's also bands all over the internet. And then again, it's also where people are pointing their attention at. Uh, so, and there's a lot to juggle, you know what I mean? There's a lot to juggle as far as even if you're just thinking of just the social media marketing aspect. I mean, you have so many different platforms, uh, you know, which demographic are you pointing towards? Does your demographic use Instagram? Do they use TikTok? Do they use Facebook? You know, so it's so much, um, so much to think of. Do you, do you see younger bands using different platforms than say like older established bands? Uh, not really. I would say that musicians in general are really bad at marketing and technology. So a lot of them are still into Facebook, uh, which I think is, I mean, you know, if you're getting the results you want out of Facebook, then great. You know, going back to what I said before, it's like test, measure, learn, repeat. Uh, if you are killing it on Facebook and you're happy with the results you're getting, then great. Keep doing it. Um, but if you keep doing the same thing on Facebook all the time and it's not working, then you need to ask, you need to kind of take a step back and deconstruct the problem. What are we doing? What platform are we doing it on? Then you sort of test things. Again, use your engineer mindset. Like, why don't you try posting the same thing on, you know, Instagram and see if you get better results? Because then, you know, maybe the platform is the issue. Or try, you know, different content. Like, just, you got to just test stuff and try to figure out what's what's up. I would say that, you know, 99% of the time, uh if you have something interesting to say and if there's something like fundamentally different and interesting about what you're doing, it will work on any platform, uh, you know, to some extent or another. Uh, there are details that matter. There are certain things that, you know, work better than others. But, for example, TikTok is a good example of this. People repost TikToks all the time on Facebook and Instagram and they do great. So the 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 content itself, the... The funny, like with TikTok, most of them are funny. The joke is what's important. Whether you tell it on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook is less important. You know, again, there are details that matter. Like if you are a really good, you know, if you're really good at writing witty one-liners, but you're really awkward on camera, then maybe Twitter is better for you than Instagram. But worry less about the platform and worry more about what you're saying. Interesting. And just to touch back on the UR, uh, URM Academy, um, what what is that? Because it says on your Wikipedia page that you do a lot of multi-tracks from albums. Uh, is that just something that, like, if you're a student at the Academy, you have the ability to, like, say, listen to the guitar tracks only or the drum tracks only of certain songs? Or is it about, yep. like, mastering and, and uh, mixing and mastering? Or... All, all the above. Oh, so cool. our, our main program is called Nail the Mix. The way that works is that each month we get a different mixer on to mix a song by one of your favorite bands, like I mentioned. So, for example, this month we have a band called Loathe on. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Kind oh, of yeah, one we've of had new... them on the podcast. The uh, Kadeem yeah. and the boys in the U.K., they're like the new Deftones are great. Exactly. So we've got Loathe. Uh, it's a, a song by Loathe being mixed by a guy named George Lieber, who's a fantastic, like, up-and-coming kind of mixer out of the UK. So the way it works is when you sign up, you get the mul- you get the raw multi-track files for the song. Like, these are literally the exact same files that the mixer used to mix the song on the album. For better or for worse, sometimes there's stuff that's fucked up about them. Sometimes they're beautiful and pristine, but... 
you know, you get exactly what he used on the album and you can uh, drop that into your software and mix it and do whatever you want with it uh, to, to learn from it. And then at the end of the month, the producer comes on and does a live stream where they walk you through exactly how they did it on the album and answers your questions live on air. So then you can kind of compare your work to theirs. Um, and there's a lot of other, you know, so you can, and you, you can say like, well, I had a really hard time you know, EQing the fizz out of the guitars on here without making them like all muddy and gross. How did you do that? And he would say, oh, great question. Well, here's how I dealt with that on the album. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff to do. Like we have a mix contest and there's like a very, very active Facebook group with like four or 5,000 people from all over the world answering questions and interacting with each other and stuff. Uh, but the core of it is that sort of monthly thing of every month there's a new mixer, new band, you get the raw multi-tracks and then they show you how to mix it, how to show, or they, they, they show you how they mixed it at the end of the month. Interesting. Yeah. The, right when you started talking about it, I was like, I have definitely seen the Kurt Ballou thing floating around where yeah. you nail the mix. Yeah. I've definitely seen that. Um, so are you big into like mixing and engineering or do you just prefer the marketing and the background on, on that at the school? Uh, I don't really do it anymore just because I don't have time. Um, but yeah, I was, I was definitely into like, you know, recording my own music and stuff for quite a while. It's fun. I like it. Um, I just, it, I just don't have, you know, there's a lot of things I would like to do that I just don't have time to do anymore. And that's one of them. But, you know, I definitely know a lot about it. Um, I'm, I'm certainly passionate about it as a, as a craft and, and more so than getting better at it myself, what I'm passionate about is, I mean, I don't suck, but I'm not great. I'm never going to be the greatest, but I'm, I'm decent. But what I'm really passionate about is helping other people get better at their craft, you know, because that's sort of, sort of like, because I care about the craft of like production, I can actually have a much greater impact by helping thousands of people all over the world get better at it than just getting better at it myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what was the, and, we, and, ahead, and, and I would say like we, meaning me and Al in particular, all of us, but like we really have changed the way that people learn how to produce music. Cause back in 2013 at creative live, I did the very first like live streaming, you know, mixing education course as we think of them now, like lots of people do that now, but Al and I did that in 2013. Like mm. that was way before anybody else did it. Yeah. And since then, lots of people have done it. You know, I'd say, you know, URM Academy kind of picked up where Creative Live left off. I, I think we learned a lot from that, but you know what we're doing now is better than what we did at Creative Live. But you know, it's it's cool to see that. Like, we really have made a difference. We've had tens of thousands of people all over the world like learn from us, and I don't think it'll you know ever go back to what it was before, where you know you had to pay a whole bunch of money to go someplace like Full Sail, you know, and intern for some fucking asshole that's going to treat you like shit. Um, you know, in exchange for teaching you his secrets and just none of that stuff happens anymore. The the culture is different now. Like it used to be that, you know, people held their mixing secrets really close to their chest and they didn't want to tell anybody how they did this. Oh, that's my secret trick. Um, and, and that's all gone now. People aren't like that. Like now people are very eager to share because they understand that if you're good at what you do, like sharing your knowledge will only help you. It's not going to like it's not going to create like a, a legion of competitors that are going to eat your lunch. And if it does, well, then I guess you weren't that special to begin yeah. with. So I, I think people are learning to see things differently and it's gratifying to see that we've really, you know, we really have changed things. Well, and something you kind of touched on in your videos, gatekeeping, that seems to be a, uh, that seems to be fading more and more as we progress in time. Yeah. Uh, so much so that I have, I'm free to say that I'm, 
listened and still listen to new metal without fear of repercussions or anything like totally. that. Totally. But I definitely was one of those kids, you know, back in the day uh, in your Haley video that you just recently posted, you know, I was one of the hardcore kids that couldn't really say that, oh, yeah, I, I listen to Taking Back Sunday and, and Paramore yeah. and all that stuff. So it's cool that we've kind of not come for, grown come up. for a circle, yeah, but grown up to the point where we can do that. Um, so how did you kind of start dabbling on, on YouTube? Like what made you decide, okay, I'm going to set up a camera here and I'm just going to give my opinion that no one's going to care about to the world? Right. Well, I mean, it's the same thing that made me start a zine and start blogging. Like, essentially, I want to be wherever the attention is. And in 1993, that was making a magazine. Uh, in 2005, that was blogging. And now, I mean, I started the channel in 2017, which I consider kind of late. But, uh, you know, YouTube was the name of the game then. So I said, well, if that's where the attention is, then I'm going to give it a try. And I don't consider myself great at making videos, um, you know, on a technical sense. Like I'm not – there's lots and lots and lots of people that know, know more about video production than I do because um, I'm not – I don't find it enjoyable. Um, but again, going back to what I was saying about marketing in general, it's like it's about the idea. Like there are lots and lots of people that make way better looking videos than I do. They get no views and it's because they're not saying something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not I'm not putting them down or anything like that. It's just that – uh, for whatever reason, people tend to get very fixated on production uh, over over the actual content, and I think that's a, a big miss. And I learned that lesson a long time ago. I'm also not the greatest writer in the world. There's lots and lots of people who are far better at the craft of writing than I am, and yet I've had I don't know dozens and dozens of things published in international magazines and written thousands of blog posts that have gotten millions and millions of views. Because, you know, I've always focused on trying to say something rather than, you know, impressing a bunch of MFAs with the clever turn of phrase that I used. Interesting. It's it's crazy you say you're not a good writer because I also think that I'm not a good writer and I've never once claimed to be a writer. But um, with so much – I mean you have – like you said, you have so much out there already that's written. And do you write your – do you write a script for your videos or do you just kind of – turn the camera on and then edit everything later. No, I write a script for all of them. Um, because for those videos, because typically what I'm saying is fairly challenging. Uh, it's important to me to get the, the specifics to, to communicate my point in exactly the right way, because you know how it is. If you on the internet, if you make the slightest mistake, people are going to jump on your shit about it. And, uh, so I want to have the closest thing I can to like an airtight bulletproof argument, that I've put out there. Um, and so for that reason, I, I, I like to write a script. Um, you know, it's possible that I maybe don't need to do that part. I don't know, but I feel like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, and I'm pretty sure that if I didn't do that, there'd be something that I would fuck up. And then all the comments would be like, well, actually blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, Oh fuck, I can't believe I didn't <laughs> say that. So I, I always try to like sort of recognize what any of the objections might be to what I'm saying. Um, a lot of which are valid, some which aren't, but recognize what those objections are and do my best to knock them down before they even come up. Interesting. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot that goes into not only preparation for like these episodes or your episodes that you have on your podcast or your channel, but yeah, it's always easier to, after the fact 2020 of another person commenting saying like, why did you talk about this, this, or this? I mean, 
if you don't have a script or bullet points lined out and admittedly, most of the podcasts that I tend to do, I try to, um, limit a lot of that. I do do some research the day or the day or two before to kind of, you know, not be completely oblivious to everything. But even if I'm really familiar with the band or the person, there are going to be things that in the moment I'm not thinking of right then and there. And, you know, I also try to, you know, talk about other things that most people may not talk about with that person. So yeah, there's a lot of comments sometimes where like, you didn't talk about XXX or this is this. And I'm like, Oh man, dude, I, and part of it is I really wish I could have, you know, there are people that I wished I could have brought up everything with, but you know, it is what it is. But you've done your yeah podcast a little bit different too. That's a conversation. You're not necessarily trying to, um, it's it's not persuasive communication, which is what I do. Like in high school, I also I forgot to mention this, but in high school I was on the debate team for like three years, and I took it really seriously. I mean, I went to like debate camp and I did tournaments every weekend and stuff like that. Um, and so I look at what I'm doing basically as like persuasive communication. Uh, I'm trying to 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 persuade people that my point of view on this is correct. And a podcast is a little bit of a different thing. So I don't, I don't think the, the, um, I don't think you have to clear the same kind of hurdle there that you do with like an essay. Oh, uh, definitely. Um, because there's, I also do rely on, on another party. And sometimes I also have, uh, Alex from Lamb with me. So right. he take, he takes some of the, he shoulders some of the weight. Um, are you still, are you still over in the Northwest now or do you live in, mm-hmm. Okay. How have you been dealing with this whole pandemic situation? Uh, as an internet creator, I'm sure that you've taken, um, you know, a lot of that time to create content and be more consistent. Not that you weren't already, but when you were talking about consistency, I thought maybe you were kind of jabbing at me <laughs> because I also do go like a month. Oh without, no, I'm not. No, I'm not jabbing at anyone. Oh no, 100. percent I was just making a joke, but I do go like a month without uploading a, you know, a podcast, and it's. I, I do notice that it definitely uh, goes in a big dip when that happens. And then if I'm, yeah. you know, killing it for a couple of months, then, you know, we're up there. But um, so how have you been doing during this pandemic? Have you just been kind of like holed up and, and just, you know, in your quarantine uh, house and create Well, content? I mean, it's it's business for me, uh, business as usual for me, because URM Academy has been a fully distributed company from the beginning. You know, we've got people in uh, Atlanta, Michigan, L.A., uh you know, Chicago, like we're, we're all over the place and we just do everything by Slack and zoom and iMessage and stuff. So this didn't affect us at all. Um, which is awesome. I mean, I, we, we designed the company that way for a reason, you know, because we wanted to be robust against things like this and it was, and, and keep our costs low. So that was normal, you know, didn't change anything for us. Uh, for me personally, you know, I've always worked from home anyway. So, doesn't change anything for me either. The only difference is now, you know, my uh, my wife is here and working from home too. And, you know, she works for Amazon and they're all working from home. And, you know, obviously with Amazon being as technology savvy as it is, like that wasn't, you know, a tremendous shift for them either. So, you know, I feel very lucky that uh, it's business as usual for us. We live uh, up in a suburb uh, you know, by Lake Washington, if anybody's familiar with the area, we live up near the very top of Lake Washington. So, you know, I just go, uh, we live, you know, it's not the woods exactly, but we live near a lot of stuff that I can go walk to. And, you know, I, I, I find it nice. There's no traffic. Uh, the only thing that really has changed for me is our jujitsu academy is closed. 
Um, but we'll do some, we'll go over to someone's house and just like roll in small groups or something like that. So, you know, I'm even getting my jujitsu, uh, fix in. So really hasn't changed anything for me. And I, I'm very grateful for that. But I also should give myself credit as I've designed my life, like I said, to be robust against things like this. Cause I got, I got hit pretty hard by the last few recessions, like the, uh, dot com, uh, bust, uh, bubble bursting in 99, um, and then, 9-11, uh, that both of those really took the wind out of my sails with things I was trying to do in my career at the time. The one in uh, 2009, fortunately, that was like right when I was graduating from college, so it didn't really, 2008, 2009, didn't really affect me too much. I was kind of lucky there, um, but I've gotten kicked in the balls by these things a couple times, and so I wanted to design a life that didn't depend on you know, the world to keep existing in its current form as much as possible. So, you know, things that happen on the internet, passive income, stuff like that. I don't want to have to be able to, I don't, I don't want to have to rely on travel or an office or any of that kind of expensive stuff. So I do want to give myself a little bit of credit for, you know, kind of having the foresight to expect to be kicked in the balls by life again. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> and, all I, and I feel, and I feel, and I'm not, you know, I'm not putting down anybody who, was kind of taken by surprise by this because I mean, how can anybody predict this? So I, I don't mean to like say, Oh, I told you so or anything like that. I feel terrible for all the people who are affected by this. No, of course, but it is going, I think what's going on currently is opening up a lot of people's eyes to the fact that, you know, I mean, growing up as, as a teenager and stuff like that, I was told a lot that like, you know, obviously music was my, biggest passion and i when i was younger in the uh like 16 14 to 16 i started my own music blog it was more so based around like new metal but then again mm -hmm. it it blossomed into like hardcore and metal and you know i had that for about five six years um when i was a teenager and of course i spent a lot of time stealing news from like lamb goat and the prp and mm -hmm. other another news organizations uh, or, or media outlets at the time but, you know, no one told me that, hey, you might be able to, like, do something with this. And so I think a lot of the things that are going on now is showing, you know, like, oh, wow, um, I don't have to go the traditional route, whichever, whatever that may be for that person. You know, you can do whatever you want. And like you were saying earlier, if you're making content and you're marketing it right, at some point you will find an audience. It's just can you withhold the time until you find the audience, you know, like – can you be consistent? Can you make it, you know, interesting? And can you, you know, like what will help you find that audience, you know? So it's, it's cool that that's going on and it's cool that a lot of bands and a lot of other organizations and outlets are adapting to that. Like, um, we're doing Skype podcasts now, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. I, when we started it, it was a goal of mine to do them as much in person as I could. Um, but of course, once the show stopped happening, you know, in person is definitely better, but you know these Skype ones are pretty good too. Oh, it definitely opens the door up more. You know, like I had like Kadeem from Loathe on a couple of weeks ago, months ago, or whatever, and you know he's from the UK. So you know, would we have been able to do that in time? Probably, but you know, who knows whenever they'll right. be over here. Um, and speaking of the pandemic and you know the music scene and stuff like that, how do you think? things will be going forward for that like shows uh will you see like live shows on the internet more i think that used to be looked down upon live streaming looked was looked down upon for the most part in the beginning but now it's become like 
this giant this giant thing of positivity for any artist or influencer that is using it uh in regards to live streaming in particular uh i'm pretty skeptical um i i don't think it's fundamentally the same like if you think about the uh what are you paying for when you go to a show it's not just you know watching the band on stage it's not just the visual part of it i mean it's an experience in general that you're paying for i think that there's some some of these bands are getting you know a little bit of success with that and that's great i'm happy for them but i don't think that's going to last you know the idea that you're just going to be able to like oh well now we'll just live stream everything and it's going to be hunky dory i think is not true um there may be a, a few people where that's true uh for them and that's great um but I think it's, you know, revealing a couple things. One, live events is a terrible business. It always has been and it always will be for a lot of reasons. For one, because there's a lot of risk. For two, because it creates zero recurring revenue. So it's a, you got to get right back on that treadmill. As soon as, as soon as this show is done, you're right back at zero and you got to get right back on that treadmill. Are you talking so, about bands and artists? Or are you talking about like the industry as a whole? Live events in general. Okay. I mean, it's fundamentally just a bad business. I mean, there's a reason why no investor will touch a live, no, 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 like reputable, like venture investor will touch a live events business for this reason. It's just fundamentally a bad business. Um, and I mean, if people like playing shows and like going to shows, like that's, that's fine. I understand that, but this is exposing exactly why it's a bad business. Because if you're, if your company depends on the ability to put on live events, what happens if you can't put on live events? You're done. As compared to, you know, any company uh, like a software company uh, that relies on subscriptions, you're good. So there's a lot more risk um, and there's no recurring revenue. And so for those reasons, I think that people are going to have to wake up to the fact that live events is an awful business. Um, <clears throat> I don't think those are going to come back anytime soon. And even if they do, I, I mean, they're going to come back eventually, but you just got to get out of the idea that live events are such an important thing. I mean, they're just not, I mean, or they shouldn't be, you know, if you've created a business that relies on you traveling 200 days a year, are you going to do that for the rest of your life? Yeah. Agreed. You know, when you have like a family or you're old, like, what are you going to do? This is not sustainable. Yeah. I think a lot of the, uh, what a lot of bands probably, you know, came into, um, into touring just to get out there, you know, to get their name out there. Because again, the internet wasn't as prevalent, yada, 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 you know, getting on shows is going to be the better way to expose your, expose your band to more people. But, um, I also don't know where the live stream thing is going to go. I mean, I did watch between the buried and me's live stream. They recently did of their colors album. Um, I did not watch the under oath one though, because it was $15, you know, to gain access to the, uh, which is a lot to the show. And of course it is a lot, you know, I would definitely, but pay it's if, not a lot to, and, and it, but it's not a lot to go see them live. No, right. No, and in that's person. I, yeah. I was going to say, and, and that, and that shows pay. you what is the relative value of, of the part of watching the band perform. It's not that, it's not that high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, You're I, paying for a lot more than just that. And there's a, there's a lot more that goes into the live show too, whether, whether you're in the front row, in the pit or in the back. I mean, there's so many other things that go along with, um, you know, you have the ability to buy merch, which a lot of people see your friends, see your friends, it, socialize. It feels different, like the sound waves hitting you. A hundred percent. In the venue, feel different. It's it, as cool as it was. I will say to watch uh, the colors stream. I, I did. I mean, between the Buried Me is one of my favorite bands, so of course, 
I, I love those guys as human beings, so I'm, I <laughs> want to be clear. I'm entirely supportive of what they're doing. I don't want it to sound at all like I'm talking shit on it. I want them to be successful. I just don't think that this is long-term a substitute for you know, for playing shows. I think bands need to figure out. Ronnie Radke is a good example. This guy is making probably somewhere around 100 grand a month on Twitch. Yeah, streaming. Uh, yeah, a lot of people stream. Um, you got to figure something else out. You got to think of yourself, in my opinion, they need to think of themselves as like influencers who happen to also make music and think about what all the other things, uh, what, what other things do influencers do? For example, like in the beauty space, uh, there's so many of these like beauty YouTubers or influencers that have like a, you know, eyeshadow palette or whatever. You yeah. have an audience. How do you monetize that one? You know, you could use that to start other ventures. Um, you can use, you could do some sort of affiliate marketing. Like there's a million things you can do. You just have to like, if you have created a business that relies on traveling, on touring hundreds of days a year, I just think that's a bad idea. And, yeah. and, and, what the answer, you know, what what kind of business model you should build, I, you know, I don't have the answer to that. Again, there's no one-size-fits-all model. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I would look to bands like Periphery and Dance Gavin Dance and The Main uh, as good examples of bands that are not huge. Those aren't huge bands. Um, but they do very well for themselves because they have a super deep relationship with their fans and they have monetized them in lots of different ways. Yeah, I definitely... Um... I definitely, I think I was talking with a, with Chris from Attila or, or even, I mean, I've talked about it on this podcast many times and before the pandemic hit that, you know, um, when Patreon came out or, or whatnot, you know, I, in my head, I was like, man, this is a really great way for other kind of acts, whether it's bands, pop, pop, metal, you know, reggae, rap, whatever. This is a yeah. great way for people to support their artists that they that they actually do love rather than going to a show or buying merch because i mean at the most point that seemed to be the way that you could really benefit the band you were seeing was to go to their live show and buy their merch uh obviously because the record sales weren't gonna necessarily get back to their pocket for the most part but yeah i i thought early on that bands were missing out by not doing any of that and you know, they I, are. I would hear a lot of people's pushback on that with, you know, like selling out or it seems cheesy, fine. blah, blah, blah. Then yeah. hold, <laughs> fine. Then hold your, I don't give a fuck. If you want to, if you want to fucking stop your own bag, then do it. I don't care. Yeah. Like Frankie, Frankie from Immure tried to do the fan club, uh, you know, a couple months ago or whatever pr prior to the pandemic. <clears> and now, you know, uh, so many bands have a fan club that they have a reoccurring subscription with, whether it be on yep. Twitch or recurring or revenue. That is, that is the best thing in the world. You don't, if you've never run a business with recurring revenue, you don't know how great it is. Yeah. Like, trust me. Like, so for example, with like URM Academy, you know, we have several thousand paying members all over the world and on any given month, you know, uh, we typically grow a little bit, but there's been some times where we've shrunk a little bit and, but it's not going to go away overnight. We might lose a couple hundred people at most in a month. And you know, that that's, that's not good, but it doesn't go to zero. Yeah. Like there's no scenario in which can, we're going to go to zero next month. It's that's not cool. going to happen. That's I know cool. that no matter what, we're going to have several thousand people who are going to stay members next month. And 
that makes life so much easier instead of going, ah, shit, if I don't book a tour by September, I make zero dollars. Yeah. And not saying that people forget that they're subscribed to your Patreon or Twitch, but that does happen. I'm sure they do. <laughs> that does and I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want them to. I'm not saying like I want them to forget, but like uh, that, that, that does happen for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, just like just, a gym membership. Of course. Yeah. Of course. They're easier to get out of though. Easier to cancel. Um, well, I could spend all day on here with you talking about marketing and social media stuff because, I, I mean, again, I can nerd out on that all day long, So, but I won't for our, for our listeners and viewers. But um, to wrap this up, you got a – like you have a pod uh, – no, sorry. You have a YouTube channel with almost 250,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the end goal for you as far as the punk rock NBA goes? Like what's your ideal situation or are you already at your ideal situation? Well, thing, I mean, I have nothing to complain about. Like everything is in a great place, so I'm I'm happy where I'm at. But I think you always have to ha- you always have to be thinking about what's next because you know life has a way. Uh, as as the world found out uh, this spring, life has a way of throwing curveballs at you. So I think you always need to be asking yourself what's next. Uh, what I have been focused on in the past couple of months is building up my social media coaching program where I help people figure out how to tell their story online, build their audience and turn that into some sort of business results. So if you want to be a full-time creator or if you're like the founder or CEO of a business that wants to grow your own personal brand as a way of growing your company, that's what I help you do. Uh, I don't expect that YouTube will last forever. I hope it does, but you know, these things tend to not last forever. Uh, eventually people will probably stop caring what I have to say about, about music, but um, if it doesn't, that's great. But what I hope is that, you know, in the next couple of years, I can build that uh, coaching business up to the point where, uh, you know, my I half jokingly say that my big uh, audacious goal is to get Amazon to pay me a million dollars to help them uh, do a better job of talking about AWS uh, than they do. Because, you know, that company should be setting the conversation around cloud computing on a daily basis and they're kind of not like if you look at their YouTube channel, for example, their videos literally get like 275 views and it's fucking AWS. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It should not be happening. They just, they're, you know, they're not good at telling stories online uh, and, and they should be. So I want them to pay me a million dollars to help them figure out how to do it. You know, they're making what something like $5 billion a quarter in profit now. I mean, they've got the um, budget for sure. <laughs> yeah. So for them to throw me a million dollars and you know, if that makes the tiniest incremental uh, dent in their business, then that was the best money they ever spent. Well, if that's not a way of manifesting your future, I don't know what else is, right? If you put it out there, you might be able exactly. to get it. Yeah. Well, exactly. it's been great. So if Andy Jassy's listening, you know where to find me. <laughs> uh, at Finn McKinty, or is it at the Punk Rock That's NBA? Right. Yeah. Um, well, it's been great having you on, Finn. Uh, I hope we can have you on again at some point. Um, and it, again, if you're not familiar with Finn, he has the YouTube channel, the Punk Rock NBA. He loads of videos on there with uh, great information as well as some opinion. And um, before we cut you off here, are the, what newer bands – whether they be hard rock, hardcore, metal, metalcore, whichever band. Are you listening to any new bands currently? Uh, bands, not a ton. Um, but I listen to, I mean, the most exciting stuff to me right now is happening in, I guess, what you would call uh, alternative rap. Like, probably my favorite current artist, like newer artist, is City Morgue. I don't know if you're familiar with them. 
I guess you would call them uh, trap metal. Okay. Um, they just came out with a new album, uh, which is pretty great. Uh, I like everything they've ever done. But, yeah, I mean, City Morgue is probably my favorite. Uh, I also like Lil Lotus a lot, uh, who's a new, like, kind of, or not new, but he is he is a an alternative or, quote, unquote, emo rapper that signed Epitaph recently. He's been around for a mm-hmm. while, but he just put out a bunch of new stuff. So I would say those are probably my two favorite newer artists in the world of alternative music. I also listen to a lot of, like, pop and like walmart country i mean it was everything you know <laughs> yeah well again now that gatekeeping is kind of a thing of the past i also listen to a lot of other things too so i i, I do i find myself currently listening to a lot more hardcore and metal than i used to in the past i used to make make electronic music dj electronic music i, I okay yeah, i grew up listening to pop and hip-hop uh so when i found when i found um heavy metal and uh in the form of Limp Bizkit's first album you know yeah. kind of infused rock and rap in a way that I'd never seen before so of course I became a big fanboy but uh yeah I I do listen to a lot of other things but um in the last couple of years I've kind of gotten more back into the hardcore and metal um at least with the new releases especially with this you have to stay up to date somewhat you know so there's so many bands and so many stuff so many things coming out at all all hours of the day <laughs> Cool. Well, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good problem to have. There's more good stuff coming out than you could ever possibly consume. Yeah, you're, you're completely correct. And now that it is unfortunately raining and I can hear it in my headphones, I don't know if you can hear it, but... Uh, yes, I can. Okay. I'm in Florida, so, you know, it rains every damn afternoon, and here we are, like clockwork at 1 o'clock. It's raining. Yes. You know, I was, so, I was thinking maybe you'd be the one in the rain, but it turns out I am. Florida is rain central, not here. Thunderstorm central for sure, yeah. Well, uh, Finn, it was great having you on. A lot of knowledge was dropped today. Uh, I hope a lot of younger bands and younger individuals who wish to get out there, take that to to heart. Maybe they go and, uh, you know, check out your podcast. Um, I know I noticed you just had Tommy Rogers on from Between the Buried Muse, so that was great. Uh, He's a great guy. Um, But, yeah, any of your informative podcasts, I know you you do a lot of things that – are on the business side. So hopefully someone takes notice of that and it helps somebody along the way. And uh, again, thanks for jumping on the Lamgo podcast, Ben. It was great to have you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. See ya. See ya. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.